This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, Scott Bruce, you had an unusual job while you were in college. What, what did you do? Yes, I, uh, I grew up in Canada, and like many other Canadian young men, I planted trees and shoveled snow and did all that kind of stuff. But the, the job that I remember most fondly was working as a grave digger. A grave digger? <laughs> yes, in fact, in a Jewish cemetery in Scarborough, the much maligned suburb where I grew up, um, working in a Jewish cemetery uh, is problematic in Canada uh, because according to Jewish custom, of course, you have to be buried by sundown the day after you've died. And in a Canadian winter, that can be particularly challenging. <laughs> With the hard ground. With the hard ground. So I became an expert both at the shovel but also at the jackhammer. Mm-hmm. I see. So this was not done with some huge excavator. You, you really did do digging. We dug. Yes, we dug. Absolutely. Okay. How long would it take to dig a grave in the, in the cold of winter? Well, it depends on whether or not we were enthusiastic enough to go six feet down. Uh, <laughs> Four and a half feet under, maybe. Okay. So the, the problem is, of course, is that once you dig through these six or... 10 or 12 or 18 inches of frost, however deep it gets when the weather is particularly cold, then you hit water. Um, and that poses some structural problems to actually digging a, a, a really, really nice, clean hole. Okay. So um, sometimes we had a bit of a splash, and um, uh, sometimes we got down pretty far. But my best graves were dug in the summer. Well, do you, do you believe in ghosts and in grave digging? Did you have encounters with them? Um, uh, no, well, my, myself, I've, yes, I believe in ghosts. I ran into many bodily remains when I was digging graves, skulls and bones and things like that. Um, but the cemetery I worked for was not haunted as far as I can tell. How about you? Have I run into ghosts? Yes. Do you believe in ghosts? I believe in them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I bought a house, and it was from the estate of a man who'd killed himself. And... The deal was really rocky, and some strange things happened just after I moved in, and the deal was finally closed. And uh, this, this gentleman had hanged himself, actually. And a friend of mine heard about this, and as a housewarming gift, she's a bit new agey. <laughs> and as a housewarming gift, she said, I know someone who will do a kind of psychic ghost cleansing of your place. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that experience. <laughs> so uh, a group of women actually came over and they walked around my condo with their hands up, sort of sensing things. And they got various bits of information. And I told them nothing, by the way, about mm-hmm. what happened, that anyone had died. And they said, you know, uh, is there anything off of the property itself we should look at? And I said, well, you should probably go to the garage. Why don't you go to the garage? Mm-hmm. They, they go to the garage, and they, they come back. And one woman says, I couldn't walk into that garage. It was like I was asphyxiated. And that is, in fact, where he had hanged himself. Wow. So mm-hmm. That gave me pause. Yes. <laughs> yes. But did it work? Was the house cleansed? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> I, there, there have not been creepy incidents since. But you used the garage? But I used the garage. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, Scott Bruce, you put yourself through school grave digging. Today, you are a professor of medieval history at CU Boulder. And for Halloween, you're here to share some ghost stories, more than a millennium's worth. We are at the Newman Center in Denver in front of a live audience whose ghoulish curiosity lured them here to talk about your collection, Penguin Book of the Undead, 1,500 Years of Supernatural Encounters. 
And to bring these stories you've collected to life, actor Anthony Powell is with us. He's artistic director of Stories on Stage in Denver. And welcome to you both. Thank you. What we're going to learn in the next hour is that modern ghost stories in the West, from haunted houses to the shambling dead, trace their roots to early Christianity and really even further back to paganism. So let's start with paganism and the practice of necromancy, communicating with the dead. I asked if you could do some necromancy for us tonight. And I refuse because it's incredibly messy. (laughs) (laughs) It's messy. (laughs) One of the earliest accounts that we have in Western literature of an encounter between a a living human being and a dead soul comes from Homer's Odyssey. And the story goes that Odysseus was trying to find his way home after the Battle of Troy, and he was having a hard time doing it. He was trying to get back to Ithaca, where he was a prince, but he'd lost his way. And the only way he could find his way back home was by consulting an Egyptian seer named Tiresias. Now, the problem was that Tiresias was dead. And the Odyssey gives us this incredible passage where it describes in vivid detail the necromantic ritual itself, which involves digging a very shallow pit and then pouring into it wine and water and sprinkling it with barley. And then over top of it, cutting the throat of of a victim, in this case a lamb or a sheep, and letting the blood flow in. And then saying the incantations to the god of death that will allow the ghost to rise up and approach the bloody offering. And you were unwilling to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Have you run into other accounts of necromancy? Like, did it differ? Well, so necromantic accounts vary in antiquity. In almost every case, there is a person, a professional, usually a religious professional, a necromancer. In, in the case of Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus is an amateur, he, but he gets instruction on how to do it from a witch. Later accounts, uh, written at the time of the Roman Empire, the necromancer is almost always a woman. Now, the Roman Empire was a deeply misogynist society, and it goes to show that if women had this kind of power, it was a power that was suspect or perhaps... Uh, dubious or dangerous. One of the stories in the book tells about a witch named Arictho who takes a, a dead soldier and forces his soul to come back up from the underworld back into his body. So he has to, he's not just a ghost, he has to inhabit his body again in order to speak. But it is messy. In order to speak, the dead have to drink that mixture of blood and barley. That's what gives them their voice. That's what gives them their breath again and allows them to speak. And they tend to tell the truth, which is a good quality, but they tend not to shut up either. They like to talk. Once you get a dead person back, all they want to do is talk and talk and talk about, oh, this is how I died, and this is what it's like by my tomb, and da-da-da-da-da. One of your first stories is about a haunted house, and it comes from a pagan named Pliny the Younger. This is in the first century He was a Roman provincial governor, and he was a prolific letter writer. He was. Uh, Do you want to set this up before Anthony reads? Absolutely. The letters of Pliny are one of the most amazing sources that we have for the first century CE. He writes on everything from the eruption of Vesuvius to Roman firefighters, but he also is very famous for telling this particular ghost story. In Athens, there was a large and spacious mansion with the bad reputation of being dangerous to its occupants. In the dead of night, the clanking of iron and, if you listened carefully, the rattle of chains could be heard, some way off at first and then close at hand. 
Then there appeared the specter of an old man, emaciated and filthy, with a long flowing beard and hair on end, wearing fetters on his legs and shaking the chains on his wrists. The wretched occupants would spend fearful nights awake in terror. Lack of sleep led to illness and then death as their dread increased. For even during the day when the apparition had vanished, the memory of it was in their mind's eyes so that their terror remained after the cause of it had gone. The house was therefore deserted, condemned to stand empty and wholly abandoned to the specter. But it was advertised as being for rent or for sale in case someone was found who knew nothing of its evil reputation. The philosopher Athenodorus came to Athens and read the notice. His suspicions were aroused when he heard the low price, and the whole story came out on inquiry, but he was nonetheless, in fact all the more, eager to rent the house. When darkness fell, he gave orders that a couch was to be made up for him in the front part of the house and asked for his notebooks, a pen, and a lamp. He sent all his servants to the inner rooms and concentrated his thoughts, eyes, and hand on his writing so that his mind would be occupied and not conjure up the phantom he had heard about nor other imaginary fears. At first, there was nothing but the general silence of night. Then came the clanking of iron and dragging of chains. He did not look up or stop writing but steeled his mind to shut out the sounds. Then the noise grew louder, came nearer, was heard in the doorway, and then inside the room. He looked around, saw, and recognized the ghost described to him. It stood and beckoned as if summoning him. Athenodorus, in his turn, signaled it to wait a little, and again bent over his notes and pen, while it stood rattling its chains over his head as he wrote. He looked around again and saw it beckoning as before, so, without further delay, he picked up his lamp and followed. It moved slowly, as if weighed down with chains, and when it turned off into the courtyard of the house, it suddenly vanished, leaving him alone. He then picked some grass and leaves and marked the spot. The following day, he approached the magistrates and advised them to give orders for the place to be dug up. There they found bones, twisted around with chains which were left bare and corroded by the fetters when time and the action of the soil had rotted away the flesh. The bones were collected and given a public burial, and after the shades had been duly laid to rest, the house saw them no more. It's remarkable to me that that's from the first century because it, it feels very modern, like I could imagine Lindsay Lohan starring in that or something. <laughs> Lindsay Lohan is the aged philosopher. Like <laughs> um, what's the lesson there? Why, why does that ghost with its chains come back? Mm. The main lesson here, and, and we're going to see over the course of the evening, that the, uh, the ghost stories are didactic. They usually tell a lesson or they teach us something. And in this case, the haunting occurs primarily because the ghost was improperly laid to rest. He's buried in chains in the yard. <laughs> Now, we can speculate as to why the ghost was in chains. Perhaps it was a criminal who was killed, uh, a fugitive, somebody like that, but clearly someone who did not have the proper solemn rites of burial that allowed its spirit to rest. And we see this, again, going back to Homer's Odyssey. When Odysseus sees the ghosts rising up, hundreds and hundreds of them come to answer his necromantic summons, he points out that Many of those ghosts are agitated for particular reasons and therefore susceptible to his summons. 
Some of them are young girls with broken hearts. Some of them are old men who had suffered much. Many of them are soldiers who died in battle, young, by violence, and then lay unburied. And that's the key point, lying unburied. And so we see this time and time again. A haunting occurs because it's a reminder that you have to do your duty to the dead to bury them. If they're your friend, your enemy, whoever they are. Otherwise, that lays the ground for a haunting. And is the message, bury your dead, a religious one? Like, that's what God wants? Or is it, you leave bodies out and that leads to disease? Like, is this a weird public health message? Well, no, that's a, <laughs> that's a really, really good question. Um, well, in, in, so, so remember that in, in Roman paganism, the whole principle of paganism is that there are many, many gods and that you owe your duty to the gods. There's no ethical component, really, to Roman religion. It's not about being a good person. It's about doing what you're supposed to do. Um, and one of the things you're supposed to do is bury the dead. Now, Rome itself was a city of over a million people right at the height of the Roman Empire. And, of course, they had a massive public health problem when indigent people died. There were thousands of people dying on the streets of Rome every day. So what did, what did they do about them? Well, they had professional funerary workers whose job it was to go around the streets to gather up those bodies, and they did so with giant hooks that they would put in the bodies and they would drag them away, and then they would take them to what we call euphemistically potter's fields, right? Just giant communal burial grounds for the indigent. And they would throw them there. But of course, nobody likes to be around people who work with dead bodies. I know this personally. And the, <laughs> As a former grave digger. Okay. <laughs> and, the, uh, and so these people were demarcated. They were often tattooed or they wore bells uh, so that you knew when they were coming. But yeah, it's a great question. Oh, yeah. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is CU Boulder historian Scott Bruce. He's put together a millennium's worth of ghost stories in the new Penguin Book of the Undead. So what happens to ghost stories when paganism gives way to Christianity? That's coming up in a conversation recorded in front of a live audience at the Newman Center in Denver. To help you get into the Halloween spirit... Here's music from a 3,000-pipe organ at the Newman Center, played by Joe Galima, who was the longtime organist at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For Halloween, we have more than a millennium's worth of ghost stories for you. They're collected in the new Penguin Book of the Undead. It was edited by CU Boulder historian Scott Bruce, who specializes in the religion and culture of the Middle Ages. He says you can trace many modern spooky stories to paganism and then early Christianity. So Christianity comes along. Mm -hmm. uh, many pagans, of course, become Christians. And the necromancer is replaced with another kind of middleman between the living and the dead. And this is a holy man. And, you know, this makes some ghost stories less scary than others because, as you said, they're didactic. They're like public service announcements. <laughs> <laughs> the world has changed. The Roman Empire has given up paganism. 
Christianity has been adopted as the official religion of the empire. Massive numbers of pagans have converted to Christianity. And yet ghosts remain pretty much unchanged. And when you think about it, when you go back and look at the 27 texts that make up the New Testament, the New Testament authors, early Christian authors, are not very interested in ghosts. They're not very interested in what happens to you immediately after you die. They're interested in the, at the end of time and the last judgment. And in fact, in the, New, in the entire New Testament, there's only one mention of a ghost. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is at the shore of a lake, and he's preaching, of course, and then he wants to go up to the mountain to pray, and he sends his followers off into the, into the lake on their boats. And then he comes down later, and they're still out there in their boats, and so he, of course, walks across the water to see them. And as he's walking across the water, the scene shifts to the boats themselves, and they say... It's a ghost. <laughs> Phantasma is the word that they use in Greek. And he says, no, 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 it's just me. Come in, the water's fine. You know, he calls Peter <laughs> in. And, you know, and, you know, and, then, and of course, the apostle lacks faith and falls in the water and all that. But so the New Testament is not very concerned with ghosts. And consequently, early Christians adopt wholesale pagan ideas about why people return from the dead, why ghosts appear. Now, what has changed, of course, is the authority. We now have a holy man who is ordering ghosts to reveal themselves and to show where they lay buried, as opposed to a pagan religious specialist like a necromancer, who in this period are now seen to be completely unsavory and inappropriate and non-Christian. And early Christians, who I suppose we can think of as Catholic, because this is before Reformation, embrace the belief that a torment in fire awaits sinful people when they die. Mm -hmm. Naturally, one wonders, what does that torment look like? And you hear that in the story, Dryfelm Returns. Why don't you set this up for us? Well, it's only in the early 7th century that a Christian author, Pope Gregory the Great, appropriates the classic ghost story and uses it to make a statement about Christians in the afterlife. And he begins telling stories about souls that return from the dead to beseech monks, especially religious specialists, for prayers. They say that they are suffering in torment, these souls, they're burning, and that the prayers of the monks will release them. And this is, in fact, the moral of the story. The monks pray, the soul comes back to say, the ghost comes back to say, I have been released, thank you so much, I'm off to heaven. <laughs> these are the earliest true Christian ghost stories. But a generation after Gregory the Great, in the late 7th century, we see a whole bunch of Christian thinkers reading his ghost stories and thinking, well, where did the ghosts come from? And this leads a number of authors to become what I like to call cartographers of the other world. They begin drawing maps in their mind and describing this place. And Bede's story of the return of Drythelm is one of the earliest ones. A man with a luminous appearance and bright clothing was my guide. We went forth without speaking in what seemed to me to be the direction of the rising of the sun at the solstice. As we walked, we arrived at a valley that was very broad and deep and seemed to stretch on forever to our left. One side of the valley was very terrifying with raging flames. The other was equally intolerable owing to fierce hail and cold blasts of snow gusting and blowing away everything in sight. Both sides were teeming with the souls of men, which seemed to be thrown back and forth as though by the onslaught of a storm. When those poor souls could no longer endure the intensity of the immense heat, they leapt into the midst of the deadly cold. And when they could find no respite there, they leapt back to the other side to burn in the midst of those unquenchable flames. Since a countless number of misshapen souls was subject to the torture of this alternating misery far and wide, 
as far as I could see without any hope of respite, I began to think that perhaps this was hell, for I had often heard stories about the agonizing torments there. My guide, who walked ahead of me, answered my thought. Do not believe this, for this is not the hell you are thinking of. So it seems like the gorier a picture you can paint, the more I'm going to want the monks praying for my sort of lost soul. Right? This becomes, in a way, like an ad for monks. It, <laughs> it really does. The first message that you're going to hear as a, as a medieval Christian when you, when you hear this story is, search your heart. What bad thing did you do or think on the way to the event tonight? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and some of you clearly worse things than others. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> so there's, so yes, this is, this, there's, a, there's a fear mechanism at work here. This is, a, this is an afterlife where people are being tormented to burn away, to get rid of those sins that they've committed. But the ultimate message is optimistic, which is that once all that stuff is burned away, it might be unpleasant in the meantime, but the final destination will be heaven. That's the thought. This will eventually these images, these ideas of this third place will eventually coalesce into the doctrine of purgatory, the doctrine of a third place of cleansing in between heaven and hell. The difference between purgatory and hell, and the spirit guide says this so well to the soul of Drytelm as he leads him through this place, is this is not the hell you're thinking of. Hell is worse, and hell is worse because hell is eternal. You're listening to a conversation recorded at the Newman Center in Denver with Scott Bruce, who put together the new Penguin Book of the Undead, 1500 Years of Supernatural Encounters. Bruce is a historian at CU Boulder. Coming up, if ghost stories helped monks sell their services, then we'll hear about the head salesman, the Don Draper of soul-saving. First, more from organist Joe Galima, who teaches at DU's Lamont School of Music. Back with Colorado Matters from CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. For Halloween, a special show of ghost stories recorded at the Newman Center in Denver. My guest is CU Boulder historian Scott Bruce, who specializes in the religion and culture of the Middle Ages. He edited the new Penguin Book of the Undead. He says ghost stories became a powerful tool for monks. You see, if people were freaked out about gruesome accounts of purgatory, they'd beseech the monks to pray for their souls and probably make a donation. So if ghost stories were ads of sorts for monks, then the monks of Clooney were like Don Drapers on Madison Avenue. So the monks of Clooney are the reason that I'm into this business. Um, They are monks who lived in, in what is now France, in Burgundy, in what is now France in the 10th, 11th, and 12th century. And in fact, their order 
persisted. The great, the great monastic house at Cluny, which was at one time the largest church in Western Europe, uh, existed until it was torn down during the French Revolution. Now, the monks of Cluny had a special claim that their prayers were better than any other monks. They, <laughs> well, let me tell you what it is before you scoff at it. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, um, they claimed that they lived an absolutely angelic life on earth. And they did this in three ways. They expressed this in three ways. They were always singing. They emulated the angels by singing the psalms over and over and over again, which is exactly, they said, what the angels do in heaven, singing God's praises eternally. They avoided all sexual contact, completely celibate. Like the angels, they attempted to be completely sexless. And they also tried to be completely silent, and now that seems to go against number one, which is that they're singing all the time. But that, but that they saw as emulating the angels. Instead, they were silent from human sounds, what they called human sounds, everyday conversation, practical commerce, as it were, in the monastery. And they went so far as to invent a sign language that they could use to express very rudimentary information to one another so that they would not speak. Because, of course, the tongue can lead to sin. And I know what you're all thinking. The hands also can lead to sin. (laughs) (laughs) And they were wary of that, too. And so the, the, the Cluniacs became the very best tellers of monastic ghost stories in the Middle Ages. Now, the stories, some of which are in the book, can be rather formulaic. It is generally some great person who visits the monastery as a ghost and then tells the monks that he wants to be prayed for, and the monks dutifully do the job. Um, but, But invariably, the ghost is then freed and sent on their way. And, of course, this is exactly what the lay audiences wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that the monks had that power. They wanted hope that the gifts they were giving to the monasteries, which was generally revenue-producing land, was efficacious for them, to get them out of purgatory, to get their family out of purgatory, to get whomever out of purgatory. And as you can imagine, over the course of centuries, the monasteries accrued huge amounts of land. Monastic institutions never die. (laughs) <laughs> they keep on going. They're called the eternal society, they're called, right? And so they, they became incredibly wealthy. Now, to preface the two stories that are coming up, by the 13th century, these ghost stories were then tailored for lay people, for everyday people like you and me. They were being written in the cloister, but then they were being redacted, shortened, and they were preached to people as sermons, so little stories that made a point. But when that audience changes, when the audience is no longer the monks and their high-level patrons, but everyday people like you and me, the stories take an especially grim turn. And so instead of seeing ghosts coming back and saying, please help me, thank you for helping me, we see ghosts on their way somewhere else. Concerning a Bavarian, not many years have elapsed since the death of a very wealthy official of the Duke of Bavaria. One night, the castle in which his wife was sleeping trembled so much that it seemed as though there was an earthquake. And behold, the door of the chamber in which she was lying opened and her husband entered, accompanied by a giant figure, blacker than black, who pushed him by the shoulders. When she saw and recognized her husband, she called him to her and made him sit upon a seat at her bedside. She felt no fear, but as she was only wearing a nightgown, she draped a part of the bed covering over her shoulders, for it was cold. She asked her husband about his condition, and he responded with sadness, I am consigned to eternal punishments. Hearing this, his wife grew very frightened and asked, What are you saying? 
Did you not give alms in abundance? Your door was open to every pilgrim. Do do these good deeds provide no benefit to you at all? He responded, They provide no advantage at all for eternal life, for I did them out of empty glory rather than out of love. When she tried to ask him about other things, he answered abruptly, I was allowed to appear to you, but I can linger here no longer. Behold, my hellish handler stands waiting for me outside. Indeed, if the leaves of every tree turned into tongues, they still could not describe my torments. After this, he was summoned and driven away. The entire castle trembled as before at his departure, and his lamenting cries echoed for a long time. Concerning the punishment of Rudinger and his drink. In the diocese of Cologne, not far from the city of Cologne, there was a certain knight by the name of Rudinger. He was so entirely given over to wine that he would attend celebrations at different country estates for the sole purpose of drinking good wine. When he became ill and was about to die, his daughter asked him to appear to her within 30 days. Responding, I will do this if I can, he died. Indeed, after his death, he appeared to his daughter in a vision. Behold, I am here just as you asked. And in his hand, he was carrying a small clay cup, which is commonly called a crucilinum, with which he used to drink in taverns. His daughter asked him, Father, what is in that cup? He responded, My drink is made from pitch and sulfur. I am always drinking from it, and I cannot empty it. Then he disappeared. And immediately the girl understood, as much from his previous life as from this punishment, that there was little or no hope of his salvation. For in the here and now, wine goes down easily, but in the end it will bite you like a snake. We are hearing more than a millennium's worth of ghost stories today, thanks to Anthony Powell of Denver Stories on Stage and CU Boulder historian Scott Bruce. Bruce edited the new Penguin Book of the Undead. Our Halloween special continues with Zombies of the Middle Ages. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For Halloween, we have a history of ghost stories. That haunted house movie that's been done over and over and over again can probably trace its roots to early Christianity, even paganism, according to Scott Bruce. He's a Middle Ages historian at CU Boulder and editor of the new Penguin Book of the Undead, 1,500 Years of Supernatural Encounters. Let's get back to our discussion recorded at the Newman Center in Denver. Ghosts get downright malicious as time goes on. Figures that look more like zombies emerge. Uh, Your chapter on this is called Rampaging Revenants. You know, it's one thing to have a ghostly figure, and it's another thing to actually have 
a corpse walking around. So throughout the Western tradition, from the beginning of our conversation, from Homer's Odyssey all the way up to the monks of Cluny, the most common type of undead is the ghost. And I should add something here, too, that we haven't talked about. The word undead. Uh, I originally wanted to call this the Penguin Book of Ghosts. And my editor said, well, we've done our market research, and Americans are obsessed with undead. So let's call it the Penguin Book of the Undead. And I said, but, but undead isn't really a category in the Middle Ages. And they said, I explain it in the introduction. And they, <laughs> that's what editors do. So I did a little bit of research. And in fact, the word undead is a medieval word. It appears in the 10th century. It's coined by a preacher whose language is your language, Old English. So a thousand years ago, a preacher is preaching and he uses the word undiadlich, which means undying. But the irony is he uses it about God. So the only undead in the Middle Ages is God because he is the one who does not die. Um, so God but, is a zombie. Good. You got it. Okay. <laughs> So, <laughs> um, but starting in the 12th century, we see a whole host of authors talking about a brand new phenomenon, and they themselves are self-conscious about it. They say, we've read ancient literature, we've read the classics, we've read nothing like this before. The dead are rising from their graves. It's not the spirits of the dead returning from purgatory. It is literal corpses rising up out of the ground and shambling around villages and threatening people and harming people and terrifying people. And so this is, this is a, it's a fascinating phenomenon that no one has really quite ever explained, except that the authors themselves... Medieval authors for whom novelty was not a good thing. They were not interested in novelty. They were interested in authoritative tradition. And they were hugely self-conscious to write these stories and yet at the same time felt they were absolutely necessary to preserve for posterity. I think that's one of the next ones we'll hear. Great. A few years ago, the chaplain of a certain noble lady died and received burial at that noble monastery called Melrose. This man had very little respect for the sacred order to which he belonged and acted very much like a layman. What especially blackened his reputation as a minister of the holy sacraments was his dedication to the vanity of hunting, with the result that he was known to many by the notorious nickname Hundeprest, that is, hound priest. And indeed, while he was alive, this preoccupation of his was alternately ridiculed by people or thought to be a refined pastime, but it was only after his death that the guilt deriving from it became clear, for he rose from his grave at night. He was unable to sow terror or cause harm in the monastery itself due to the merits of the holy monks who lived there. After that, he wandered around outside the abbey and carried on with great groans and a hideous murmuring, particularly around the bedchamber of his former mistress. After this had happened a few times, she became very anxious and shared the enormity of her fear and sense of danger with one of the monks who visited her concerning an affair related to the abbey. She demanded, with tears, that prayers more earnest than usual be poured forth on her behalf, as though for one suffering in agony. The monk sympathized graciously, and for good reason with her anxiety, for she seemed most deserving of numerous prayers from the holy community of that place— and he promised a prompt remedy through the mercy of the highest power. The monk returned to the abbey and joined forces with another monk of the same age and temperament and two strong young men with whom he kept watch over the cemetery where that wretched priest lay buried. 
These four men, furnished with weapons and bravery, spent the night in that place, safe in the support that they provided for one another. Midnight had just passed, and no sign of the monster had appeared. Then it happened that three of them, leaving alone in that place the one who had brought them all together, went into a nearby house, as they explained, to ward off the chill of the night with a fire. Then, when this monk found himself alone in that place, the devil, believing that he had found the right moment to break the monk's courage, roused his vessel, which had seemed to have lain quiet longer than usual. Seeing the monster from a distance, at first the monk grew stiff with fear, for he was alone, but he soon recovered his courage. When it was clear that there was no place to run, he valiantly intercepted the onslaught of the horror which rushed toward him with a terrible roar and buried the battle axe he was wielding deep into its body. When it received this wound, the monster let out a cry and, turning its back, fled away, though not quite as quickly as it had advanced. The amazing monk harried his fleeing foe from behind and forced it back into its own tomb, which gaped open for the monster on its own accord. Once it had snatched its guest from the sight of its pursuer, the tomb appeared to close right away with the same ease. While these events were taking place, the companions, who had sought relief from the night's chill near the fire, left the house and ran late to the scene. When they heard what had happened, at dawn they assisted in digging up that cursed corpse and dragging it away from the tomb. Once they had cleansed the monster of the dirt that came out with it, they found on its body the great wound that it had received, and in the tomb a large amount of gore which had flowed from it. And so they carried the corpse beyond the walls of the abbey for burning and scattered the ashes. So zombies are a way of ratcheting up the intensity of these didactic previous ghost stories? Well, it's clear from the story that the zombie itself rose up because the person was bad in their life. Uh as an especially wicked individual. And... The devil is mentioned as one of the agents of this potentially, though not every story mentions the devil in that way. Right, like the devil's puppet. Right, exactly. And, but it's very hard to tell what the dead soul is getting out of this. It's not like the soul is asking, that soul is agitated and asking for rest. It's almost like the person was so bad that the torments of purgatory are not enough. So it's brought back to its body to roam around its own, you know, its old hometown um, until it's finally irrevocably destroyed. The fate of its soul after that, we don't know. What's so striking about these stories, though, is that they don't fit into a nice pattern in terms of how you deal with the problem. In one of the zombie stories, or one of the revenant stories from this chapter, the local villagers write to the bishop. And the bishop writes a letter of absolution, um, absolving the corpse of its sins, and all they have to do is gingerly place it on the corpse's chest in the tomb. <laughs> right? And that works. But in every other case, what we see here are local medieval people solving a local problem by time-hallowed means. You have to cut off the heads of these things. You have to burn them. In some cases, you have to take out their hearts and burn them, and the hearts crack open and the spirits fly out. But monks wielding battle axes are your best bet when, <laughs> when prayers don't work. <laughs> and what's striking, too, is that archaeologists in England, in the very places where these stories are being told in the north of England, have excavated graveyards where they have found individuals whose heads have been cut off and placed between their legs 
which suggests that if there's a particularly nasty person who dies, you don't want to take any chances. <laughs> the other method, of course, is simply to bury them upside down because if they start digging their way out, they're going the wrong way. <laughs> but this really is the precursor to, like, The Walking Dead and how indeed. we kill zombies. It is. Well, how you kill zombies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, this is, there's, there's folk wisdom here. There's ways of dealing with these kind of problems here. This is clearly a concern for certain communities. And if it was just a one-off story, you might not think so. But these stories are told there are multiple versions of the same story of the very wicked person who rises and shambles about. They often don't kill anybody, not directly. One, and they're, off, oh, they're often huge and bloated and terrible things. One has a particularly interesting relationship with his former mistress, and he's, he likes to come into her bedroom and lie on top of her at night, which of course terrifies her. And others, others spread disease with their pestilent breaths, or they're followed by packs of howling dogs. They're just a very terrifying sight, until brave people, generally with weapons, uh, do away with them. Ghost stories morph even further after Reformation, the, the mm-hmm. schism from the Catholic Church by Martin Luther. Uh, they reject the idea of purgatory, for instance, mm-hmm. this really hellish place that isn't hell. Uh, how do these new Christians see ghosts? Well, Protestants are put into a bit of a difficult position. They're challenging hundreds of years of Christian tradition by claiming that there is no purgatory. And of course, their source of authority is the sacred scripture. It's the text of the New Testament. And if you read those texts, you'll see there's no purgatory. (laughs) And so for them, it was an invention of the papacy, a way for the papacy to gain power and authority and wealth, because of course, money was flowing into the church to help pay to get souls out of purgatory. For Martin Luther and his followers, it was God's grace. It was your own faith and God's grace that, that got you into heaven. The rest of us were hellbound. Uh, And this break in the tradition is traumatic. But Protestants couldn't deny that people kept seeing images of the dead. This was a common occurrence in the pre-modern world. The dead were all around us. It wasn't hard to see them. But But the Protestants said, these are not really the dead we're seeing. In some rare cases, they're angels. But in most cases, they're demons who have come to beguile you, who have come to trick you. And in fact, we see this very clearly in Shakespeare's Hamlet, when the, the character of Hamlet, who is probably a Protestant, is told that the ghost of his father is walking the ramparts of the castle. It could only be one of two things for him. He asks, is it a spirit of health or a goblin damned? Right? Is it an angel or a devil? And part of his great anxiety, and part of the reason why he's so distraught, is that when he meets the ghost, it's very clear it is in fact his father. <laughs> We see a Protestant young man faced with a Catholic ghost. (laughs) And that's the tension in that play. Wow. Well, you're on something of a creepy kick with Penguin because your next book for them will be the Penguin Book of Hell. (laughs) Yes, so I'm going all the way. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) I'm not flirting in purgatory anymore. No, there's... um, when I, when, but I had a good relationship with my editor at Penguin, and he came to me and said, let's do another book. And I said, great, let's do another book. And he said, I've been reading all of these books about, about heaven, about people having, going to heaven and experiencing heaven. He said, Is, does that happen in the Middle Ages? And I said, absolutely, but it's terribly boring. 
<laughs> White halls, you know, all this light. It's just no, no fun at all. I said, the visions of hell, believe me, are much more interesting. And that led to a conversation where we, we, we started talking about the history of the punitive afterlife and thought, well, we, we can't just end it with the Reformation. That's not a logical break for us at all. And so this book will go from all the way from the most ancient texts in Mesopotamia all the way up to modern America. And one of the proposed subtitles was From Gehenna to Guantanamo. <laughs> and why Guantanamo? Well, Guantanamo because the, the detainees are subject to torture through sound. And what they are subject to is music that is played at the volume of a jackhammer over and over and over again. Often popular music, uh, heavy metal music or, you know, very, very industrial, abrasive kind, abrasive kind of music, um, but also the, the worst jingles you can possibly imagine. And so the book will end with the playlist um, at, at the detention center that these individuals suffered. So it may come with a CD, we'll see. <laughs> uh, so you can experience hell yourself at maximum volume. Um, but, but really, the history of hell in the 20th century is, is our thinking about our world in terms of the other world rather than the other way around. Is it true that one track on that playlist is the theme to the children's television show Barney? It is. <laughs> Scott Bruce, thanks for being with us. Ryan, thank you so much. And thank you all so much for coming and listening. And- CU Boulder historian Scott Bruce talked with us about his Penguin Book of the Undead, 1,500 Years of Supernatural Encounters. Thanks also to Anthony Powell of Stories on Stage in Denver and to organist Joe Galima. You can read an excerpt of Bruce's book and see pictures from our evening at the Newman Center at cprnews.org. Finally today, a taste of what's to come this week on Colorado Matters. This election has divided people. Whether you dropped a friend on Facebook or just avoid talking politics at the water cooler, other political opposites, though, are making it work. And this week, we will bring you some of their stories, like Bonnie Schreiner of Denver and her husband, Hank. She's voting for Clinton. He's voting for Trump. She bought a Clinton sign to put on their front lawn. And then all of a sudden one day the mailman's coming and I see that he has this big old box. And then I saw it was from the Trump campaign. Instead of handing it over to her husband who'd ordered it, she put it in her car. And I took it to my office and put it in the closet and just left it at that. <laughs> and about, well, it was about maybe three weeks later, I saw my husband, who's an old fighter pilot, and he can't hear very well. And I was driving up from work and I saw him. He didn't hear me. He's taken my Hillary sign out of the front yard and put it back around the side of the house into the garage. And so I didn't say anything for a couple of days. And then 
he said, where's my Trump sign? And I said, where's my Hillary sign? And so then we had this detente. And finally I said, okay, look, I'll give you the Trump sign and you have give it to a neighbor to put in their yard. And you give me back my Hillary sign and I'll put it in a neighbor's yard. And that's how we've resolved it. But neither of us have produced the sign yet. So we're still at loggerheads. <laughs> Bonnie Schreiner of Denver. More stories of political opposites coexisting this week on Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks to Rachel Estabrook and Michael Hughes. Matt Hers as well. This is CPR News.